Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And again, we are reading uh, kind of through the gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. And, um, and here we have, again, early in Jesus' ministry, and we get a bit of a of Jesus being questioned by those who are seeing what he's doing and don't understand it. Before I read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you've given to us. Lord, we ask this morning that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would help us. Help us to have ears to hear and minds to think and understand. We ask that you would uh, give us hearts that you have made ready to receive your word into our lives today. Now that even today, by your word and by your spirit, you would continue to make us into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And turning to our New Testament reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As Paul has been writing to the church in Corinth about the, um, the new covenant we have in Jesus. And then he says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I can just see a nod of heads of those of you who are familiar with the phrase liminal space. Anybody familiar with liminal space? A few of you? I think I'm seeing more shaking than nodding. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, liminal space is a uh, way of describing spaces that you're all familiar with, spaces that you have uh, been in many times in your life, sometimes a physical space, sometimes more uh, in a metaphorical sense. Uh, But it is a transition space. It's a between somewhere and somewhere else. And so, for example, the foyer here of our sanctuary, when you are coming in or going out, if you're in the foyer, you're not really in the sanctuary, but you're not really outside either. You're in this in-between space. You've left the one, but you're not yet in the other. The same kind of thing is true when you go to a doctor's office. And when you first go to see the doctor, you don't see the doctor, do you? You go and you sit in a waiting room. And as Jerry Seinfeld used to say, when they finally do call your name, you think you're going to see the doctor, but you're not. You're just going to a smaller waiting room. (laughs) And that is the experience. So we know this experience of being kind of in between. And um, this happens not just in these physical spaces, but it also happens at transition periods of our lives when we have left one season of our life behind, and yet the other hasn't quite begun yet. I think of Pastor Mark at Baptist Church, I believe today's his last Sunday, as he's preparing to go uh, to a new church. And so for him, this is a season of that. But it's not just for him. It's for his whole church. Uh, That whole church is going through this transition where what this past era has been is coming to an end. And there will be a new era, but it hasn't begun yet. And so they're kind of in this in-between moment. We know what this is like. We know this experience. And and I think it's helpful to have this kind of language, liminal space. That's what this is. It's like a threshold kind of a deal. Uh, So like when you're leaving one room and going into another, that part where the doorway is, if you're standing right there in the doorway, you're not really in either space. Kind of in both, kind of in neither. And, um, and so it's helpful to be able to think about that kind of a thing and to acknowledge when we're in those seasons. And I also think that it's often in these times when, um, when we have particular meetings with God. And if you think back over the course of your life, you may be able to even identify times where you have been in this liminal space, in this time of transition where the one thing has ended, um, but the next has not yet begun. Where you were maybe even more in tune with who God is and what he is uh, saying to you or doing in your life than maybe when you are just sort of in full swing of the everyday normal. And I think these spaces do open us up to that kind of paying attention to what God is doing in our lives. And we're going to look at a time like that in the life of Jacob this morning and see how God showed up in his life at just such a time. This is Genesis chapter 32. And this is at a time when uh, Jacob, who had wronged his twin brother Esau, multiple occasions when they were still living together at home to the point that Esau wanted to kill him. And so their mom said, Jacob, you really better get out of here. And so sends him away and he has gone away and he's been gone for some 20 years. 
And what we looked at last week is while he'd been gone, he had been trying to cheat his uncle who he's living with, and his uncle was also trying to cheat him. And they had come to such uh, odds with each other that now as Jacob was leaving, he didn't just say, hey, by the way, uncle, I'm headed out. He just took everything he could and got out of there. And his uncle catches up with him, and they have kind of a, an interaction there. And the, but the question is, you know, why are you wronging me? And we said that then they put up a, um, a pile of rocks to remind them, basically, that they can't trust each other. And that's where the story left off. And so when it left off, Jacob is on his way back home, back to meet his twin brother that he wronged so many years ago. The plan at the time was that he would go away long enough for his brother to cool down and not want to kill him anymore. It's been 20 years. Surely nobody remembers what happened 20 years ago, right? Anybody here remember anything that happened 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah, probably so. Younger ones, maybe not. 20 years at your age seems like forever. Later on, it sure isn't. So he's coming back home after 20 years, but surely Esau has forgotten. Surely he doesn't remember that he still wants to kill his brother. (laughs) But maybe. So Jacob's on his way. He's left the one place. He's not yet to the other. Here's what happens. Chapter 32. says, Jacob also went on his way. And the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, to the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you're to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. This is part one. We're going to cover this in seven parts. Each one could probably be a sermon of its own, but we're going to uh, do what we've been doing with this whole series. We're not going to get every detail. We're going to try to just hear the whole story. So this is the part one. It's the messengers. The messengers that Jacob sends, but there's also messengers that God has sent. The word in Hebrew for angels And the word in Hebrew for messengers that Jacob sends, it's the same word. God sends his messengers to Jacob, and then Jacob sends his messengers to Esau. And so we have something parallel happening there. And Jacob recognizes that there's something parallel happening here. And so he names this place Mahanaim, which means two camps. And he says, there's the camp of God here, but there's also my camp. And so he recognizes that in this place, um, something heavenly is going on. We are told, by the way, this is one of those things that just bugs me. We are told the message that uh, Jacob's messengers are to take to Esau. We have no idea what the messages are that the angels bring to Jacob. Wouldn't you like to know that? Man, that'd be nice. But we don't have that. Um, But we do see messengers being sent to and from. And then we get the report in verses 6 through 8. Because when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. 
and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. You hear what's happening here? So the report that they bring back is, oh, Esau's coming out to meet you. Does this sound like it's going to be a happy reunion? That's sure not the way Jacob takes it. It's not your brother's coming out to meet you. He's coming out with 400 men. What a welcome party. Oh, wait, unless he still wants to kill me. And the, oh, no. And that's how Jacob takes it. We know this because he, of how he responds. It says, in great fear and distress, he divided the people who are with him into two groups. And now, once again, we have two camps. But it's no longer the camp of God and the camp of Jacob. Now, Jacob has been divided into two groups. And why does he say he's divided in two groups? Fear and distress but also as a strategic move where basically he's like, I don't want all my eggs in one basket. He looks like he's coming and he's going to try to come and just slaughter us all. But maybe if we split up, he can only get half of us. And then whichever half he attacks, at least maybe half of us can escape. We'll see. So then what do you do in a time like this? Verses 9 through 12, then Jacob prayed. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. This is a desperate prayer, but it is a prayer where he is looking to God and holding on to the promises that God has made in the past. Did you hear it? The God of my father Abraham, my father Isaac, And the God who has said these things in the past. And he acknowledges, I know I don't deserve the kindness and the faithfulness you've shown me thus far. And yet, this is what God has shown. Has continued kindness and faithfulness to Jacob throughout Jacob's life. And Jacob knows, I don't deserve that. And he admits that. And he's like, but I have already seen the ways that you have uh, shown your kindness and faithfulness. But boy, I need you now. I know I don't have a right to ask, but, and so I'm not asking based on what I deserve. You see this? He's not saying, God, look, I've done this and this and this for you. Now will you? No, that was the promise that he made at Bethel. Remember? When he was fleeing home and God appeared to him then, and Jacob made a deal and said, God, if you'll do these things for me, then I'll do these things for you. And that's the way. Well, now he doesn't come back and say, well, look, God, I've done all these things for you. Now you owe me. Not even close. He says, my only hope at this point is if you act. If you save me from the hand of my brother Esau. But I have good reason to think that you might do it. And it's not because of anything I've done. It's because of the promises you've made and because I know that you are faithful to your promises. But he prays and then he acts. What does he do? 
This is the plan. This is verses 13 through 21. Jacob is not done with his scheming. This is one of the things we see through from him uh, a lot. So we go again. Verse 13. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him and be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. So this is the plan. You get it? Get what he's doing here? On the one hand, he's kind of trying to buy his brother's favor. But another sense that what's happening here looks like someone who is in a sinking ship and they start bailing cargo. The stuff that he is sending on is stuff that he has worked for. It's stuff that he has uh, been scheming to acquire over the years. He recognizes that it was all actually given to him by God. But still, this is what he has wanted to have. And now he has it. And he's just getting rid of it. Like, why is he getting rid of it? Same reason somebody does when they're bailing cargo on a ship. I would rather have my life than to, and not have the stuff than to have the stuff and die in the storm. Jesus says something similar with, you know, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And when Jacob realizes that his very life is in danger, stuff doesn't seem to have that place of priority it used to. And so he starts bailing and sending it to Esau, one group at a time, so that hopefully by the time Jacob finally arrives, Esau will have been worn down. And if he is still angry and wanting to kill Jacob, by the time he finally sees Jacob, he'll be like, you know, you've given me all this stuff. You know what? Let's just let it go. That's Jacob's hope. Does Jacob have any guarantee this is going to work? No. But what else does he have to try? And so this is kind of his desperate plan, the last-ditch effort, we'll go with this. Sent all the gifts ahead of him. And then, verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
You hear what's happened here. We are seeing happening in a physical sense what we've already seen going on in a spiritual sense. Is this Jacob wrestling and trying to hold on to the promise of God? Jacob coming to the end of himself and realizing that he has done all he can do. And all he can do has gotten him into a position where he still has no guarantee of success. All he can do still may not be enough. But what else does he have? And so as he is struggling, the man says, let me go. And Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This recognition that if he does not have the blessing of God, he has nothing. It doesn't matter how many flocks and herds. It doesn't matter all of his uh, scheming and trying to outwit his brother. It doesn't matter. Without the blessing of God, he has nothing. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob. He answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Here we have three name issues. One is the man asked him, What, what is your name? We have not had... A recorded time that Jacob has had to tell somebody his name since he was with his father 20 years earlier, at least 20 years earlier. And at that time, Jacob didn't say his name was Jacob, did he? He said his name was Esau. This is when he was deceiving his own father in order to steal his brother's blessing. And he did receive a blessing, but it was under a false name. And now he's asked again, what is your name? And he has to own it. To claim his own name and not just any name, but a name that actually means figuratively one who deceives. One who grabs the heel. And so he says, this is who I am. I'm Jacob. And yet it's in this moment that then the man says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, meaning one who struggles with God. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Isn't that interesting? That it says that he's overcome. How, how exactly has he overcome? Do you see his situation? He is alone he is afraid. He is scared for his life. He has nothing left. All that he has left is just himself and this man that he's wrestling with. And yet it says, there you go. 
you win. What? Because there's this point that Jacob finally realizes, which is said a bit ago, unless he has the blessing of God, he has nothing. That he has come to the end of himself. That all the, his, this struggle, what it has produced, is not that he has climbed this ladder of success himself. What he has done is he has learned through the struggle that he needs help from somebody else. And that is the victory. That is how he has overcome. How weird is that? Isn't that so backwards from the way we tend to think of things? But this is that upside-down kingdom business we see all the way through the New Testament as well. This is the kind of thing that Paul talks about when he's like, you know, it's when I'm weak that I'm strong. We think that we've got it all on our own. Oh, leave me alone. I've got this. Oh, dear. That's recipe for disaster. But it's when we realize that we come to the end of ourselves, we know our own limitations, and we say, God, we need you. Ah, there we go. And I think this is why this wrestling match happens and why it goes on so long, that this is what they've been doing, is having this um, kind of spiritual wrestling match for at least 20 years. And in verse 25, when it says that the man saw he could not overpower him, I'm like, wait a second, isn't, isn't this God that's wrestling with him? God can't overpower Jacob? What is that about? And I think that is just the same thing as you can't make someone love you. If it's not their choice, it's not real. And this is what's happening with God and Jacob, that God has been very patiently <laughs> participating in this struggle with Jacob. As Jacob thrashes about his whole life long, trying, trying to make something, and God is just right there with him the whole time. And I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to make you. Trust me, I'm going to give you every reason why you can, but I'm not going to make it happen that way. And yet we get to the end, and we see Jacob gets there. And when, so, when that happens... And the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. You've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob asks the man's name. He won't tell him. Why do you ask my name? But then he blesses him. And Jacob calls the place, another naming, calls the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. As a result, verse 31 and 32, says, The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So great. Jacob walks away having received the blessing of God. And yet... It came at a cost. He walks away a changed man, not just with a new name, not with a new identity that way, not just with a new understanding of what has happened in his liminal space between leaving his father-in-law and going back to his brother. But he leaves simultaneously a broken and healed man. 
He has a physical brokenness now that he didn't have before. And yet, he has a spiritual healing now that he didn't have before. He has this blessing of God in his life that he, is, uh, that he knows of and is confident in. But he also has a limp. He has a reminder of this encounter that will go with him the rest of his life. Not just for his life, but even, as it says, the people of Israel for generations and generations. As a reminder of the limitations that Jacob had. If he still had his full functioning health, he still might be tempted when he comes face to face with Esau. Let's do this thing. <laughs> Let's fight it out. But now he goes as someone who can't fight with his own strength and has to depend on God, but that's the very thing that this is supposed to remind him of, that that's where the real strength is. As I mentioned, this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians when he says he has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is. And he keeps asking God to just take that away. But he doesn't. And instead, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what Jacob is discovering here. And then Paul continues and says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I think that is the reason um, we see that final line of not only does he limp, but it's not something that's been hidden. And we're not going to talk about that for the you know, future generations. No, future generations honor that, um, that injury. Almost like they are boasting in the weakness of Jacob because they know that that's where the power of God is found. So when we come to the end of ourselves, we acknowledge our limitations. I mentioned liminal space. We talked about Jacob at his. But I think one of the other reasons that we can relate to this kind of a thing is not just because we have moments of liminal space in our life, but because the entire Christian life is kind of talked about in these terms. That once we become a Christian, we are no longer what we once were, but we also are not yet what we know we will be. And so we live our lives in this space between what was and what is to be. But that's okay. Because it's in these spaces where God meets with his people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we do thank you for the promises that you have made to us. We thank you for the ways that we have seen your kindness and your faithfulness on display for us, even though we acknowledge that we don't deserve it. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness in saving us when we do not deserve it. And God, we thank you for uh, the way in which you do help us to see 
by your own uh, mercy and grace, our own human limitations. Not that we would be in despair, but that we would come to know what it means to depend on you, to trust in you. And God, we thank you that as we uh, learn to trust in you, we get to not just hear about your faithfulness, but we get to experience it for ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace and love and mercy. When we come to the end of ourselves, God, we see your salvation as such good news. We pray that you would help us to know the good news as good news for us and for the world. God, help us to be those who share it share it as good news with those who need to hear it. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.